Well, this is week four of our Advent series we entitled Weight of the World, and uh, we kind of took an angle at weight, not just kind of the way the church has always viewed the Advent as the coming of Christ, looking towards the coming of Christ, the first time and even the second coming of Christ, but kind of twisted the words to talk about the weight that we deal with as we wait for his return. And uh, I know it hasn't been maybe a lot of yucks to, to look at the problem to such a depth and degree that we can actually celebrate what God did to solve the problem. Um, but nevertheless, I think it's a good exercise. So the first week we talked about sin, the reason why Jesus came, to save sinners. And uh, I, don't think, I don't think you can sing songs like this with joy appropriately. I don't think you can have anything to celebrate. I don't, I don't think that this, uh, this contentment and peace that the scriptures talk about can be seen unless you look through the gory parts and, and admit the gory parts, and that's the sin part. We also take a look at the uh, fear and doubt and worry that people manage as they cope with life and, and talked about uh, the gospel, Jesus the Savior being the conclusion of the things that we have a tendency to want to replace him with. But and last week we talked, we talked about joy, kind of a twist really, because uh, joy is one of those things that we're in a constant pursuit for, and uh, everyone's hunting for it, but we have a tendency to look in the wrong places, places that were never intended to bring it never intended to, to bring a lasting sense of satisfaction and that the conclusion of our life, every pursuit of our life is a longing for God and a relationship with God. And so if you're frustrated in your joy, just take it as a loving act of God so that he can point you towards the ultimate joy and satisfaction who is Jesus. But today we're going to talk about grace. Um, we're going to talk about it um, because it is the uh, reason... Um, it's the reason Israel was looking for Messiah, by the way, but didn't know how to spell it. They, they thought Messiah, good, great, leader, awesome, but he came so differently than a leader. He came so humble and, and so average and so intentional. And in spite of what people are looking for from a Savior, he came to give us what we really, really needed, and that was uh, forgiveness and grace, right? And so we're going to look at that, that word today. Um, the reason why he arrived for us, this perfect and complete action of God's grace. I, I got a handful of quotes here of some really smart men that give a definition or an inkling towards a perspective of grace I want to use to uh, talk to you this morning. Here's what Dwight Moody says. Grace means undeserved kindness. It is the gift of God to man the moment he sees he is unworthy of God's favor. John Piper said, grace is not simply leniency when we have sinned. Grace is the enabling gift of God not to sin. Grace is power, not just pardon. Now, hopefully when you see these quotes, they all kind of add together for a full picture of it. Charles Spurgeon said, a man is not saved against his will, but he is made willing by the operation of the Holy Ghost. A mighty grace which he does not wish to resist enters into a man, disarms him, and makes him a new creature, and he is saved. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, it is... Grace at the beginning and it's grace at the end so that when you and I come to lie upon our deathbeds, that one thing that should comfort and help and strengthen us there is the thing that helped us in the beginning, not wait what we have been, not what we have done, but the grace of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then Jerry Bridges said this, your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace and your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. I suppose if you're really thinking about those phrases, that's prob probably enough um, for us to consume today, but we're going to go on. Um, I'm going to quote another great theologian, uh, Bono from U2. Um, 
He actually is a pretty good writer. He wrote a song a few years ago, and I, I didn't know this would work at 8 o'clock, but I think they got it. So um, if you like modern lyrics, uh, he wrote a song called Grace a few years ago. This is how it goes. Grace, she takes the blame. She covers the shame, removes the stain. It could be your name. Grace is the name of a girl. It's, it's also a thought that changed the world. She travels outside of karma. When she goes to work, you can hear her strings. Grace finds beauty in everything. She carries a pearl in perfect condition. What once was hurt, what once was fiction, what left the mark no longer stings because grace makes beauty out of ugly things. Now, if you like poetry, I guess that's a way to describe this, this mess that God's grace arrives in and extends to people who don't, aren't particularly interested in looking for it. I, uh, I've told you this before. This is the most difficult subject I talk about because I have a hard time saying it without crying. This is, this is my hope. Everything about what God gives that I didn't earn, or, or probably better said, in spite of what I've deserved, he, he extends forgiveness to me. So I have a hard time talking about it, so bear with me as I wrestle through it. But it is the greatest truth I've ever heard. It also happens to be one of the most misunderstood truths. E even for some Christians, when it comes to really the depth, the weight, the breadth of grace. And so uh, I want to start by defining it from Paul's writings in Romans and Ephesians, Romans chapter 3. You're familiar because we've been through this study together, but verse 21 through 24, here's what Paul says. But now the righteousness of God, God's holiness, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And then lastly, in Romans 11, we've seen this as well, but if, that if it's by grace, if the salvation that is ours is truly by grace alone, then it's no longer the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. Right? What makes Christianity different than all other religions that have ever existed on the planet, even currently, is this word. Everything else, everything else you've ever heard of is work your way out of your problem. Everything else is karma. What goes around comes around. Good pile, just make sure it's bigger than your bad pile and somebody will sort out the differences and you'll get what you deserve. That's what every religion in the world says apart from orthodox biblical Christianity that says you can't. There isn't anything you can do. There's no, there's no pile to build. Even when you build it, you still fall short of God's holy standard. And there's a reason why we struggle with the truth and the concept of grace. It's because uh, one is there's an adversary who wants to convince us that it doesn't work. Satan's always in, the, in, the, in play here telling us that our sin really isn't that bad. It's not really that bad. It's pretty common to man. God understands that. And don't worry about it. Whatever it might be, whatever it is, a thought or an action, it can't be that bad. God is not going to get as serious as hell over what you just did. So just, just relax. That's one lie. The, the other lie potentially is that uh, he tells you, well, try harder. Like, go, go towards effort. Like, that's in us, right? And the flesh even has an inclination towards it. Like, by nature, not by supernatural work, but by nature, natural fleshly order, we are programmed to perform. You know the, the movie Rocky? And I mean the first one, not 29, but Rocky 1. 
Okay, Rocky won. Remember when Rocky was invited to fight Apollo Creed? And uh, he was worried about it. He was talking to Adrian. And his statement to her, I think, is a, is a statement we can use to talk about every person's response um, and why we pursue things other than grace. His statement to her was, I just want to go 15 rounds. Because if I go 15 rounds with the world's heavyweight champion, then they'll know I'm not a bum. You remember that? I think spiritually speaking, that's what every man, woman, and child has always tried to do. Tried to prove on our own that we're not a bum. Like somehow all this stuff the Bible says and the gospel says about my problem and my sin, it can't be that bad. And so I'm going to prove myself that I'm, I'm not as bad as it implies that I am. So because we don't understand or maybe we don't know or, um, or believe God's grace, there's a way and there's lots of ways in which we manage. I've already mentioned performance, but that happens. We attempt to earn God's favor and approval by what we do. We try to make it up to God. Hasn't that happened? I mean, I have conversations with people who, who've had one of those days or one of those weeks where they show up at a service like this and we've taken communion and they sit it out. They just say, well, I'm not going to do it because obviously God knows what I've done and so I got to make myself cleaner. And so I'll spend a week really doing well, not doing those sins of which I did last week and then when I come back, God will take me seriously. He'll know my intentions and I'll earn my way or acceptance of that. That happens. We try to be good enough to meet his standards on our own. We also cope with, with pretending. We manage this lack of understanding of grace by um, making yourself appear better than you are. That's, that's so classic in us. And someone once said, and I believe it to be true, that the church is a great place to hide from God. You can come in. You guys look great, by the way. You look great, and you sang the songs when you were supposed to and you're quiet now, and you're listening to me, who would know? Who would know what you're made of? If we just look around, we all look the same, fairly homogenous. And you could get an impression looking at you that we all believe in the same thing, but it isn't true. And we're content putting on a, a, a kind of a, a presentation of who we are, what we think people want to see in us. We manage our guilt and fear. We put up a front, right? Some of us, because we don't really understand God's grace, we live in fear. After all, if I, if I do those things, God's intention is to crush me, right? Like God gets really angry, and, and uh, his point is to, uh, to lean on me. And we're convinced that blessing, God's blessing, is connected to pleasing God. So rather than admit our failure, we put up a front and we for, just so we don't have to forfeit his blessing. Or there's this other thing called insecurity. There, there are people who are so massively insecure um, as far as how they're seen by God and how they're seen by others that they spend their life controlling situations and others in order for them to feel safe. Some people, because they don't understand God's grace, they live in anger. Don't I deserve better than this, God? Don't you see me trying, God? How come you're not answering my prayer, God? Come on, God, why aren't you there for me? Why do I have to deal with this situation or this circumstance? And so we live with, with anger towards God, or which is classically American, we live with joylessness. There is no joy. In fact, worship is not even a concept for you. It's all work. It's all uphill. It is no fun. There is no satisfaction. There is no joy, no thanksgiving. You just keep grinding it out. No love. I better do it or else. Or the possibility that pride is a way we cope. We compare ourselves and our efforts to other people around us. 
and we become legalistic and judgmental of others, right? And so if they're not doing what I would do or they're doing what I wouldn't, therefore they are right or wrong, however you want to view it. And so what this legalistic person does is highlight the faults of others and downgrades the faults of its own so that it can look better and feel better, feel safer, and sleep well. Tim Chester said this about grace. Without grace, we view life as a a contract between us and God. We do good works, and in return, he blesses us. When things go well, we're filled with pride. But when things go badly, either we blame ourselves and feel guilty, or we blame God and we feel bitter. If we don't understand grace, then those are our conclusions. I want to take you to a passage of Scripture to teach you about grace this morning. At least some, what I think are very valuable parts of grace. And uh, it's in John chapter 8. If you want to turn there with me, we'll have the text up on the screen. But it's a day in the life of Jesus with a woman. And uh, it tells us volumes of the specifics, the power, the outcome of God's grace. Um, This is a passage of scripture. You probably have a little section in your Bible that says not in the original manuscripts. Don't worry. That doesn't mean it's not um, of God, from God, and teaches us some things. They just a lot of... uh, Translators just say this is not John's writings and it doesn't fit here, but most would say it's canonical and it belongs in the Bible and to teach it. So we're going to teach it. It's in every translation you have, but nevertheless, I wanted to mention that if you read that in the heading. Let's read this section. We're going to pick it up in uh, verse 2 of chapter 8 and read the story. Early in the morning, he, that is Jesus, came... Again to the temple, all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What, What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. That's an interesting statement. Um, And Jesus left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. There, there's some observations just to get out of the way as far as the story that, that help us understand the intent of Christ here. We have, um, we have a woman who was brought to Jesus, and it, I find it really interesting that the man wasn't brought. I, I know this, adultery takes two to tango, and so somehow this woman was caught, but the man wasn't caught. So that tells you there was an intention in this catching. Uh, I believe that she was set up to make a point to test Christ, okay? Doesn't mean she wasn't guilty, but clearly set, set up to make the point. Um, she was accused, and she did not argue the accusation. And the test was very simple for Christ. Jesus was notorious. He had a reputation for his compassion. Everywhere he went, he extended grace and compassion to other people. Um, the question then stands, if he, they bring this woman to Jesus, would he stay compassionate when all that Moses had taught the people about adultery was so apparent to everyone? He couldn't deny what the law was. So it was just presented right there for everyone to see what's he going to do with the truth. 
okay? The other side of the test was that Jesus was being followed at this point and, and loved, and he was winsome, and he was popular. People were there for a reason. If he agreed to her execution, if he followed through on the law, would he lose the support of the people? Would the, the, would the following stop, right? And so there was a test here for Christ. Would he be compassionate or would he obey? And that's how the Pharisees saw this thing. Very simple. Here's the test, okay? I want you to notice two things in this, in this passage. In verse 7 and verse 11, two things that Jesus does. Verse 7, he lays down the standard for judgment. Look what he says. Let him who was without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. What's the standard for judgment? Sinlessness, right? Holiness. So that's the first thing. That's why when, when the crowds were listening to that statement, they peeled off one at a time from the older to the younger because the older people go, wow, I've got 60 years in this. I'm not sinless. And they peeled off. And everyone to the youngest left knowing they were exposed. The second thing I want you to notice in this story is, is what he does to her in verse 11. He grants grace to this woman. He says, where are they? She says, I don't know. They're, they're gone. He says, well, then neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. How can Jesus say that? I mean, that is, uh, that's almost absurd. How can he grant grace like this? This is the, the main thing that infuriated the religious elite at the time. The Pharisees hated Christ for claims like this because everyone knew what he said. When he said, I don't condemn you, all the people who laughed knew that they weren't up to the standard of con condemning someone else, but Jesus claimed to be. He's the one who could sort out the pieces. He's the one with the standard. This is what made them mad. This is what ultimately led to Jesus' death. Claims like this. Claims reserved for God, right? Which is exactly what Jesus meant here and why he came. That he was the sinless one who became a payment for our sin. We know this, right? And it's what Paul taught all throughout his writings in Romans and Ephesians. Grace isn't a dream, people. It's a reality, by faith in Christ alone. This, this no condemnation is available to all who would believe in. I want to remind you of some passages just, just so we have a foundation as we move on. What Jesus said, what he declared, Paul reiterates multiple times in the scriptures, particularly in Romans chapter 3, that no condemnation comes exclusively, exclusively through Jesus. No, no other way. Here's what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, 1 through 3. There is therefore now no condemnation. You better have the second half. For those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. There's a reason why he can declare no condemnation. It's because he was condemned. Jesus, at this point in time, was looking prophetically to his next future years when he would go to the cross and he would bear for this woman's sin. But he extended her grace and no condemnation because he is the exclusive way, right? The second thing about this grace is that the no condemnation comes as a gift. It's not worked for. Ephesians 2, Paul said this in verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not as a result of works that no one may boast. Condemnation comes exclusively, exclusively through Christ. It's only offered as a gift. It's never earned. It can't be earned. And then ultimately, uh, Paul tells us in, in Romans chapter 8 that this uh, grace is permanent and forever. 
Listen to this. So, so if you're one of those folks who have wrestled with sin recently and you're overwhelmed and, and you, you don't have a lot of confidence in, in your own heart based on your own behavior and maybe the adversary is telling you a lot of things that aren't true, I want you to listen to what Paul says about the, the permanency and the eternality of this grace. What shall we say then to these things? Paul's talking about the gospel. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it's written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What can separate you, church? Nothing. Exclusively through Christ, that's where we get grace. Exclusively as a gift, right? God gives it and it lasts forever. Now, I'm gonna go to David. David is reflecting on the grace he's received. And in Psalm 103, he talks about the radical nature of God's grace. And I want you to see almost absurd language to describe this, the depth of it. In Psalm 103, 8 through 14, this is David's words. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers we are but dust. I I don't know. Maybe there's another way that God could have inspired one of the writers to say, here's another way to look at the unbelievable nature and radical position of grace to sinners. Okay, but this is what he said. Of all things. Let me describe the distance between your greatest failures and how God sees you. Let's talk about how far directions are from each other. East from west. What you have done. You know the stuff that you hope your kids never find out? The the stuff you parent against because if they replicate what you did, you're certain it'll ruin their life. That stuff. The stuff you're currently dealing with stuff that you're convinced that you have to process alone that leaves you defeated or worn out or disappointed or disappointing somebody else, that stuff. And let me just, I don't know, this is probably not encouraging, but there's going to be a pile of this for the rest of your life. All the sin that will come, the stuff you haven't even invented yet, the stuff you've promised like a long time ago, you would never, ever do. You couldn't see yourself doing. That's sin. All of that stuff, God says, because of Christ, let me tell you how far I've taken it from you. As far as the east can be from the west, as far as wherever you are from where I am, that's how far I've taken it from you. And here's why. Because God in Christ poured out every one of your sins, 
committed, will commit sins on Christ. And he says, what sin? He doesn't see it because he's already punished it in Christ. He's not going to bring it up. He's, that would be double jeopardy. He's not going to bring it up and say, hey, wait a minute. That stuff I poured out on Christ 2,000 years ago, what enough. It's an unbelievable, radical nature of grace that it comes only through the exclusive way of Jesus. It comes as a gift to sinners who aren't looking for it. It's permanent. It's forever. It's radical, so radical it changes who we are. And that's what Jesus meant when he offered this woman no condemnation. It's exactly what he meant. This is what he gave her. It is almost too good to be true. Isn't it? It's almost too good to be true. It is so awesome. Now, let's go back to the story for a second. Because there are a couple things I want you to see about the grace you received that you may not have noticed. You might have just glanced over. Verse 4 is one of those things where he says, um, where at least these Pharisees said, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. This woman was guilty. She was exposed. She didn't deny it. She didn't start out by saying, whoa, 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 let me tell you the other half of the story, Jesus. I'm a victim. I was set up. It was the man's fault. You don't have any idea how I grew up. You don't know what my dad was like. You don't know the story, Jesus, so please cut me some slack. I'm not as bad as that. I'm not as guilty as that. I'm telling you her silence was her confession. It was the exposure. She just tapped out. She said, whatever. I have nothing to say. That's one part of this story you can't forget. There's a second part that I want you to see in verse 11 where Jesus said to her, um, when she said to him, no one, no one, Lord, no one's here to condemn me. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Now, this is the phrase, go and from now on sin no more. This is Jesus' call to repentance. Now, the reason why I bring up those two particular verses and those two phrases to make a point about grace is because, and cut me some slack on the terminology, I'm calling those two statements the guardrails to grace. Some people have taken grace and said, okay, God doesn't care about sin at all. I can live any way I want to. And I don't think God produces those type of people. That doesn't mean that we are sinless. It just doesn't mean we go headlong away from God and into sin, okay? These are the guardrails. This, this is where grace is found, in exposure and repentance. Do you understand what I'm saying? Confession and repentance. Now, I need you to listen very carefully because I don't want to distort what you know about grace and everything I just read to you because it's absolutely true. It's truer than anything else you know in your life. So listen very carefully. Grace is totally free. You don't work for it. There's nothing you could do to have God look down from heaven on you and say, you deserve my heaven. Nothing. It lasts forever, and it's perfectly complete for us. There's absolutely nothing you can do to earn it. Therefore, there's nothing you can do to lose it. Nothing, okay? All him. He gets all the credit, all the glory, so that no one will boast. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians 2, okay? But, now hang in here. Grace never, ever arrives without confession and repentance. 
So I'll listen again very carefully. Confession and repentance are not a condition or work to do to get grace. They're not. There's no, that's not an activity to do to get it. It is the work of grace. I call it the inevitability of grace. It's what grace does. When God's grace arrives on you, you stop making excuses for your sin. When God's grace arrives on you, you leave your sin and pursue your Savior. They are the guardrails to grace. You want to know if you're truly his? Then look at how you've responded to sin. How have you responded to him? If you have no change in your life, and yet you're walking around somewhere with Jesus wear or some kind of cool bumper sticker that says you love Christ and there's a fish on there. That doesn't make it, okay? <laughs> the guardrails to this grace is confession and repentance. Remember the passage in Romans 2 where Paul says it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance? Remember that? It's interesting because the kindness word there means to provide what's needed. Isn't that interesting? To provide what's needed. And what God provides is the grace to leave our sin and pursue Jesus. That's the grace he provides. Not just to get you out of hell into his heaven, but to transform his people. Do you understand what I'm saying? God doesn't just save people unto a future hope and glory. He saves their inclinations, and he saves their want-tos, and he saves their confession. He saves their words. He saves their confession. That's what he does. So you probably have your own story. Somewhere in your life you woke up and you stopped calling yourself a victim and you called sin what it was. It's just a rebellion against God. Where does that come from? God's grace. And then you said, I don't want it anymore. I want him. And so you started to pursue righteous things and love for him and affections for him. Not that you're perfect. Not that you've sorted everything out, but you're pursuing him. Where does that come from? God's grace. Do you understand what I'm saying? Let me go to one last passage in the time we have left. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And the reason why I'm going here is I want to give you biblical definition of what repentance looks like because I don't think we understand that word either. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Just as much as people are confused about the nature, depth, breadth, awesomeness of God's grace, I think people are confused about what it means to repent. And so we're going to finish with this clear description here of what God's grace looks like in repentance. Verse 10 of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You might have a text that says sorrow. The concept there is repentance. Godly sorrow or godly grief and worldly sorrow, a worldly grief. Now, here's something you need to know about the two. I can't tell them apart sometimes. When people experience the weight of their decisions called sin, I see tears in both faces. When they're caught in their trespasses, they typically react similarly. It's hard to tell the difference. But they're not the same. Because Paul says one leads to life, one leads to death. So it's very important that we know the difference, okay? Very important to see what the qualities of these are. So let me describe a little bit worldly grief so we know what that looks like. This is the fear of consequence thing. What if I get exposed? What will people think of me? What will she do towards me? What will he do towards me? 
This is the sadness over losing what we love. Now, I talked about this last week. Like, we, we are in a per- perpetual pursuit of joy and satisfaction in things, right? Well, when we are exposed for a thing, let's say it's a relationship outside of what God has allowed, and it gets exposed as sin, we have regret and we feel the loss, but it's the loss not of disappointing God. It's the loss of losing what we love in spite of God. Get it? It's embarrassment. It's feeling sorry for yourself, it's guilt, it's despair, it's, it's also very short-lived. It doesn't last. Worldly sorrow has a very short shelf life. I want to read you, I'm going to take the risk of reading something to you that's a little bit heady, so you've got to listen to it. It's Arthur Pink's um, definition of worldly sorrow. Here's what he says. All sorrow over sin is not a, a godly one, neither does it lead to evangelical repentance. Evangelical repentance, we say, for there is sometimes a repentance or remorse as was displayed in the tragic case of Judas, which does not terminate in salvation. Such is the sorrow of the world, that is, the sorrow of the unregenerate, of those who are strangers unto the Lord. So far from their shallow leading to, their sorrow leading to life, it ends in death. Okay, so far? He goes on to say this. The sorrow of the world is the grief and sorrow of disappointing worldly whirlings of those who know not God, but those whose trust is in themselves or in some arm of flesh. They have relied for, uh, relied for happiness from the world, and the world has sadly failed them. They have sought satisfaction from its broken cisterns only to have their hopes dashed. The bitter springs from which their ambitions have proceeded are pride and carnal self-seeking, and their motives and occasions for indulging the same are as manifold as the deceitful lust of the flesh. But frustrated plans and defeated expectations sour and enrage them, and the nature's greenness is, inter- is turned into the drought of unrepentant grief. So far from leading the soul to God, it fills with wrath and enmity against him. Its miserable subjects seek consolation from the world, endeavoring to drive away serious reflections by drowning themselves in its pleasures. Let me paraphrase for you, if that was a mouthful. Worldly sorrow is fundamentally just this. It's experiencing the disappointment and the weight of sin. But here's what worldly sorrow does. It goes back to the sin to medicate the pain. It doesn't equal God. It doesn't go to grace. It doesn't go to salvation. It doesn't. It does what it does because it's stuck on self and sin. And when it experiences the loss and the defeat of that, it just keeps going back to sin to medicate the problem. Worldly sorrow. It has no conclusion other than death and separation. Got it? Here's what godly sorrow is. Godly sorrow. We have 10 minutes. Paul says in verse 11, listen to this. Pretty detailed. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you've been proved innocent in the matter. Now I'm gonna take the time to define all eight of these particular phrases. Because in it, I think Paul is giving the church a clear description of what it's like when God gets busy in the heart for repentance, okay? So here's the first thing he says. Earnestness. See what earnestness. It's, it's the idea of eager to pursue righteousness. It is the end of apathy. Church, have you ever been apathetic to the things of God? Ever? I'm the only one? <laughs> ever been apathetic to the things of God? Okay, this, when godly repentance lands on this heart, he wants out. He wants out of the apathy. He wants out of the indifference. He wants to pursue. He is, he is eager to pursue righteousness. It's almost like a described impatience for righteousness. It's like the knee-jerk reaction when you come to your senses about something you're pursuing and all you want is to be in the other place. 
Got it? That's that eagerness. The second, or the earnestness. The second word that he uses, eagerness to clear yourself. It is the desire to clean up your reputation. It's the desire to restore other people's trust in you. It is getting distance from your sin. It is to live so differently in your life for an extended period of time of your life that no one will use your sin to describe who you are. And that happens, right? You live so differently, no one remembers where you've been. Indignation. The word is uh, anger, holy anger, righteous indignation. You're angry about your sin, angry about the shame that it brought to the Lord and his name. It's, it's the same kind of attitude when you're in love with someone and someone does them harm, that feeling, that rage to defend and be protective, that kind of emotion is the indignation, the righteous indignation. Paul says, what fear? You might have a text that says alarm. The point is, is that we understand that God is the one who sees everything that we do and uh, God disciplines those he loves. And nobody who's intelligent wants that. You don't want to walk in willful disobedience to such a degree your only experience with God is a loving father who has to swatch it, Right? Focus is not on you or what others think or the cost. It's just on God. God, you're the one. You're the one. You're the reason why I'm interested in this moment and my behavior because I take you seriously. Another word that he says or phrase, he says, what longing. It is the deepest desire to restore the relationship with God and other people that your sin messed up. Now, you know this, right? God doesn't wander on us in our sin, we wander on him. We, we kind of go the other way. And this kind of repentance says, I want back. I want, I want to be there again. All you want is him. And sin has this tendency to turn your stomach. You ever been there? I've been there. I've been there where, where I'm almost nauseous at how I've behaved or how I've thought or what I've done. And I don't want to be there anymore. And I'm longing, I'm longing to be so connected to the spirit of God that I don't remember those things. Zeal. What zeal, Paul says. It's passion. You love God so much that you hate the sin that hurts him. You are in love with him and his will in your life. He says, what punishment. This one's really interesting. This means no excuses. You're ready to see justice done at all costs. You stop protecting yourself and your self-interest goes out the window. You just want Jesus. And if there are things that you have to deal with because of your behavior, they're so, so, so far down the list because all you want is proximity to God. You want to be right with him again, right? You want your sin sin dealt with no matter what the cost. God, this is kind of your phrase, God, just tear it out no matter what it takes, right? The last phrase that Paul uses to describe a biblical godly sorrow or repentance is to prove yourselves to be innocent. Pursuing holiness, it's life change, it's, it's, it's go the other way. It's what the word repentance means. You, you're aggressive towards godliness. Do you see the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow? Everyone in here probably didn't need that tutorial to figure out what we're talking about because we've had both. If you're a Christian, you've had both. You've walked in a season or a time where you just hated what you did because it affected you, and now you've got this other example called God's Gospel, God's grace arrives in your life, and now you hate sin for a whole different other reason. And you want to go the other way for a whole different other reason. 
because your affection and your attention on the kingdom of God. That's what God's grace does to us. That's the godly sorrow that he leads us to. This wonderful, wonderful, wonderful truth of God's grace. The love of God shows up when you're not even looking for it. That just always blew me, blew my mind. Like all of us had a, a place in time in our life where we were just happy without him, we thought. Weren't seeking him, didn't care about him, wouldn't make any decisions for him. And he came on a pursuit from heaven for us. That's grace. You didn't want it, but you're going to get it. You're going to get the good you don't deserve and you don't seek after. This wonderful grace that is the acceptance of God in spite of everything that we've done, in spite of everything that we've done. The grace of God, this faithfulness of God that holds on to us no matter what we, we do. That truth. And it's the work of God, according to the 2 Corinthians 7 passage, or 8 passage, the work of God to change his people. He's committed to us, church. He's committed to our transformation through Christ alone. The grace of God that superabounds, superabounds in us and for us and through us, which, by the way, is the whole point of Christmas. The superabounding nature of God's grace took on flesh, became a baby in a donkey stable in order to redeem a people who didn't even want redemption. That just blows my mind. So let me finish with a couple of thoughts. When we picked this Advent series, I had two audiences in mind. I thought, well, there's going to be some people who uh, kick the tires at Christmas, and I, I'm glad you're here, and, but you do. You come because it's a holiday, and that's probably what you're supposed to do. So I wanted to stop you in your tracks today and invite you to think and consider what this woman experienced and this wonderful, wonderful, amazing word, and I'm not lying to you, the greatest word I've ever heard in my life. If you're one of those people who are right now continually trying to pursue um, acceptance with God by your life, by your work, by your sincerity, then I'm going to tell you what I think I already know about you. Aren't you tired? Aren't you already tired of performance? Aren't you tired of, of pretending? Aren't you tired of the guilt trips? Aren't you tired of, of all the joylessness and never having it equal anything lasting? Aren't you tired of the pride? Aren't you tired of the whole thing? Well, then I'm just going to tell you how simple it is. This woman is a perfect example of what you do. Come to Christ, exposed. He already knows. Just stop arguing. Confess. And you will hear from him the same thing she heard from him. I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Guardrails to grace. Confession, repentance, and that's the work that God's doing. Some of you, maybe today, you heard it for the first time. And you're invited in because that's what God does. He draws people who wouldn't come after him into him. For most of you, because I know a lot of your faces, most of you, this is old news to you. I don't mean that as bad as that sounded, but uh, <laughs> you're very, very familiar with the word grace. But I also am watching your faces and watching how it is a fresh word, again, because of our sin and our inability. And I want you to know it's reliable. And it's trustworthy. And it's the only reason we actually put up trees and sing songs and, and do these things because the whole thing is the event of God coming close to us. He came close to us. And he sympathizes with our weaknesses and inabilities and, and he provides the way out. Amen. Let's, uh, let's pray together.
Father God, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the grace, this unmerited kindness and favor you extend to people like us. And it's available to all who would believe, and I pray, God, you're making some believe right this minute. For the rest of us, God, I pray that it makes this Christmas more rich and more deep and more satisfying because of what it says. It is the picture of the sovereign God of the universe making a way for us. All we can do is say thank you, we love you, we pray this in Christ's name, amen.